from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Once again, I want to welcome you back to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim, and I am very excited for our podcast episode today. Joining me on Rounds are two fantastic guest professors, Drs. Matt Martin and Vanessa Ho. Many of you already know Dr. Martin from his numerous contributions to the world of trauma and acute care surgery via his military career, extensive publications, and social media presence. As we've mentioned previously, Matt is a retired colonel with the U.S. Army and the current Trauma Research and Education Director in the Department of Surgery at Scripps Mercy Medical Center in sunny San Diego. Stay classy. Matt holds numerous leadership positions on our key national and international trauma professional organizations. And earlier this year, when New York was being hit hard with COVID-19, Dr. Martin generously and selflessly volunteered his time to travel to New York with other volunteers from across the country to provide aid and assistance to our healthcare colleagues, partners, patients, and loved ones who were really going through just an indescribable and difficult time. So thanks again, Matt, for joining us and sharing your knowledge and experience with me and our listeners. Thanks, Dennis. Good to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. I got to say, you know, we've had numerous guest professors on the show. Every time people listen to the episode we did on endpoints of resuscitation, it's like, oh, man, you should have Matt Martin back on your show. Have Matt Martin back. I'm like, yeah, he's okay. I mean, don't you like it when I just like talk about stuff? And No, no, Matt Martin. So thanks again, man. And then also joining us is Dr. Vanessa Ho. Dr. Ho is an associate professor of surgery at Case Western Reserve University and an attending physician at Metro Health Medical Center in the Division of Trauma, Critical Care, Burns, and Acute Care in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Ho has numerous publications, presentations, book chapters, and educational guides to her name, and she is, very much like Matt, extensively involved in committee and organizational work and leadership roles within societies, including the ACS, AAST East, and the Surgical Infection Society. So welcome to Rounds, and thanks for joining us, Dr. Ho. Speaking of SIS, I was looking at an email earlier today, and apparently my actual annual membership dues are in arrears. And so after this interview, I think I will go pay them so I don't get any more nasty hate mail. But more relevant to our discussion is a great review paper or synopsis, uh, Vanessa, that you published with a few of our colleagues from SIS as well as uh, EAST in Surgical Infections earlier this year. And the name of that paper is Sepsis 2019, What Surgeons Need to Know. And we'll have a link to the article in the show notes. So we know that sepsis places a huge burden on our healthcare system and society in terms of costs, as well as morbidity and mortality. More than three quarters of a million patients are admitted to hospitals with sepsis annually in the United States. And over the last 20 years, we've seen some changes in terms of our recognition classification, as well as therapies for sepsis. So Matt, starting with you, Dr. Martin, when it comes to defining sepsis, as we talk to our learners and house staff about how we recognize this syndrome, 
What do you think about these changing definitions from sepsis one to sepsis three? Are they better now than they were back then? And what are you teaching your learners in terms of how to recognize this sometimes confusing syndrome? Yeah, well, well, and I think those are two separate issues. You know, one is what are the current definitions? And that's important to know. It's also very important to know for anyone taking board exams, because that's what you'll get asked. And then there's the practical question of, well, how do I identify it at the bedside? So the definitions and any resident or fellows going to be taking boards should know the definitions have changed to the sepsis three criteria, which basically is infection plus end organ injury. And that diagnosis now does not rely on SIRS criteria anymore. Everybody, like probably all of you and I learned SIRS plus infection was how you define sepsis. And the problem with that is it's not very specific and it's oversensitive. You know, again, in my age, if I walk up two flights of stairs, I meet SIRS criteria. <laughs> that that doesn't, mean I'm, doesn't mean I'm septic. So the definition now is based on end organ injury and you have to have evidence of that. And the way they've defined it is a change in the SOFA score which is an assessment of end organs. And if it changes by two points or more with an infection, that diagnosis sepsis. And then there's also, but the problem is that can be hard to calculate quickly. And it also sometimes takes time to define those changes. So there's the Q-SOFA or Quick-SOFA, and that's for rapid bedside identification. Uh, and those criteria are based on altered mental status, tachypnea, rate respiratory grade in 22, or a hypotension. And they define that as systolic less than 100, which is interesting because they, you know, they said we're getting rid of the SERS criteria, but they basically snuck SERS back in because QSOFA is essentially three SERS criteria. But that's something that can trigger you early that this might be sepsis. The, the nice thing also about current EMRs is most of them have built-in sepsis identifiers, and many of you who use one of them get probably get that annoying screen that comes up, you know, because they've met some criteria. And you have to either order a sepsis protocol or reply that, no, this is not sepsis. So while those can be annoying, those have greatly helped us, I think, to identify sepsis earlier and begin treatment, which, again, early treatment is probably the key to better outcomes. And Dr. Ho, in your paper, you do kind of discuss how the sepsis 3 criteria were developed as well as some of the shortcomings because again, the SOFA or QSOFA score that uh, Matt is talking about really wasn't designed to capture sepsis recognition, but really more for identifying critically ill patients at risk for longer hospitalization or increased mortality. So any thoughts in terms of the sepsis 3 definition? Sure. I think you hit the nail on the head right there. So what they did when they created sepsis 3 was that they were creating a tool that would be good for prognostication of patients who have sepsis. So sepsis 3 identifies people who are likely to have a high mortality and die from infection. And what that did was it made sepsis disease of sicker people than it used to be. So sepsis 1 with the SERS criteria, the SERS plus infection, it was a very broad definition and you could capture a lot of people who were infected. Sepsis 3 essentially got rid of severe sepsis, and sepsis now is probably what used to be classified as severe sepsis, because severe sepsis was, you know, SERS plus infection plus evidence of end organ damage, and they basically just got rid of the, the lowest level criteria of infection there. And so now I think if you use 
clinically the sepsis three definition in trying to identify potential patients with sepsis, you're going to potentially miss some of those patients who haven't yet hit end organ damage or who respond well to initial fluid resuscitation but are sort of right on the cusp. So I personally don't like sepsis three very much for clinical use. I think it's useful for research to sort of define this population that has very high risk, but I don't think it's as useful for deciding, for example, who gets empiric antibiotics or or things like that. And I know I may be in the minority there, but sepsis 3, I think, is very useful for prognostication and a little less useful for diagnosis. Matt, any thoughts on that? Uh, No, and just to highlight that great point that Severe sepsis is now no longer a category. It's basically your diagnoses or your criteria are sepsis, which is what used to be called severe sepsis, or septic shock, which also has a specific definition of a MAP less than 65, pressures required to maintain a MAP less than 65 after fluid resuscitation and a lactate greater than two. Again, for your board exam, you need to know those criteria and that the old severe sepsis uh, has gone away now. And the only other point to make that has been confusing to many people is that CMS, you know, which guides payment, actually has a different definition of sepsis, which has a few more criteria and which is confusing and creating some significant controversy. So just be aware, though, that that CMS has a slightly different set of diagnostic criteria for sepsis. Yeah, and I think that anyone involved in hospital administration or quality improvement is going to be very familiar with the fact that oftentimes the CMS definition and the procedures required therein oftentimes trumps a lot of what we're talking about. Yeah, I still remember as a a learner, you know, talking about sepsis, I always was taught it was sort of on the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you've got SIRS, and on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got septic shock, and in between, You've got sepsis and severe sepsis, and they almost presented it, and I learned sepsis almost like it was this continuous spectrum. You started here, you move through this point to that point to that point, but in fact, we know that patients can just present with rip-roaring septic shock, and it's not necessarily the case that they progress from SIRS to severe sepsis to septic shock. And so I think, like we say, any form of sepsis is severe, And so the question really becomes, like uh, Matt, you mentioned, uh, are they vasopressor dependent or are there biochemical findings of hypoperfusion? I guess one of the things that I do like about sepsis 3 is probably the fact that they do focus on the, the neurologic criteria and they get rid of any lab values. The reason I personally like that is just with your assessment at the bedside, if you've got a patient who's got some sort of encephalopathy, together with one of the other two physiologic criteria that should kind of pique your curiosity or make you aware that the patient's at risk for sepsis. But uh, when it comes to things like lactate and the early sepsis bundle, obviously there's a big focus in the first hour to do all the things in terms of cultures, antibiotics, the lactate and the resuscitation fluids, 30 cc's per kg. Does that vary or... Are we just doing this across the board for every patient that we see in the emergency room or on the wards, Dr. Ho? So I think that's a really good question. And what we need to remember is that there's really good data that suggests 
that if you have a patient who potentially has sepsis, the best way to treat them is to hit them hard with antibiotics, make sure the antibiotics cover the bugs that the patient potentially has. Zosin <laughs> We're actually moving away from Vago and Zosin because there's some data that that gives you a slightly increased risk of having acute kidney injury, but we do that sort of a regimen that's very broad. So you got to hit the patient hard with a very broad spectrum antibiotic that covers anything they might have, you know, that penetrates into the organ system that may be infected. And then if you turn out to be wrong, you've got to turn those antibiotics off. So hit them hard, hit them early, get the bug that's potentially in there. And if they turn out not to have sepsis and they have another reason for their infection or they have an easily treated bug that you can narrow their spectrum for, then that's the way to go. So I think, you know, there's data that shows that with every hour you wait to start antibiotics, the mortality rate goes up, right? So I think that it's worthwhile to do these very early aggressive maneuvers, EMR notifications and things like that to get people to recognize that. But then you also have to say, hey, we were wrong. This patient doesn't have an infection. We've got to stop the antibiotics. And that sort of makes us good stewards. Matt, any thoughts on the early or one-hour bundle? No, I agree with all those points, and I certainly wouldn't argue antibiotics with two members of the Surgical Infection Society as a non-member. But yeah, <laughs> you know, you, know, you should join. Yeah, how are you not already like a member? <laughs> and for anybody who who didn't see it, we had an epic. We got the society started on an epic Twitter battle among <laughs> themselves uh, a couple days ago. Yeah, the, I agree with that. You want to hit them early. And, you know, I think, as you noticed, Dr. Ho said antibiotics first, because there's the sepsis one hour bundle you just mentioned. And there's a lot of controversy over whether that actually has a benefit or which aspects of it have a benefit. And probably the data is strongest for getting antibiotics early and getting cultures before you start the antibiotics. Starting the fluid and finishing a 30 cc per kilogram bolus in everybody is more of a controversial one. And there have been a couple studies that have come out now. There's one that just came out in JAMA Medicine that showed compliance with the CEP1 bundle actually had no impact on outcomes. And there are some downsides to that. And the IDSA uh, has highlighted some of those. Their concerns that this prompts administration of antibiotics to more people who don't need it and who don't have infection. It prompts the use of more broad spectrum antibiotics. Uh, and that may not have a benefit in the long run. But I agree with Dr. Ho that you want to adequately resuscitate them, you want to start antibiotics, and probably as importantly, you want to get source control if some type of external or interventional source control is required. Yeah, if there's one thing in that bundle that's going to save lives, it's going to be the antibiotics. And ideally, broad spectrum, I kind of joke about the Zosin and Vanco because I think we do recognize there are, there are some potential renal side effects and complications. And it kind of just takes the whole thought process out of the mix. You know, it's just so easy to have that knee-jerk reaction to say, let's give him a carbapenem with some Vanco or, you know, piperacillin tazobactam and Vanco. But when it comes to like a simplified approach to initiating antibiotics in a surgical patient or let's say a patient with intra-abdominal sepsis, how do you guys approach antibiotic selection 
when you're talking to your learners and saying, hey, this is how I think about antibiotics, Matt, what's your sort of basic approach? Well, I, I think the common approach is start broad, cover the likely organisms. And, you know, unfortunately, at that stage, you usually don't know which organism it's going to be uh, or even what category. So you want to cover gram positives, you want to cover gram negatives, you want to cover anaerobes. And then there are special situations, you know, where they might have high risk for fungal and you want to cover fungal elements. But in terms of the data on, you know, starting antibiotics within a certain time, giving fluid within a certain time, I think the one thing that's clear from the data is if you pick inappropriate antibiotics up front, that clearly is associated with worse outcomes. So trying to do a more tailored approach, you know, you know, I think this is gram positive. I'm just going to put them on Vanco and they had gram negative sepsis, you've now significantly worsened their outcomes. And, you know, I'd say our most common regimen is something like, you know, Vank and Zosin. If patient has higher risk for having, you know, resistant gram negatives, then we'll double cover with a second gram negative agent. Uh, but I also think it's, it's important or it's critical. You look at your local antibiotogram and your local organisms and susceptibilities, and that'll be different, you know, between hospitals. And that's probably a more important guide than any general broad, well, you know, you should start Banksosin or Banksosin and add Cepapime if you're worried about Pseudomonas. Dr. Ho, any thoughts on uh, antibiotic selection up front or an approach to initiating antibiotics? Sure. And one thing you had asked too was, how do you talk to your trainees about antibiotic selection in general? And so I'm going to start there and then move into for sepsis. So when I talk to my trainees, I think I tell them, listen, there are only three reasons to give antibiotics to a patient, period. There's prophylaxis, right? There's empiric antibiotics, and then there's therapeutic antibiotics. So, you know, when you're thinking about prophylaxis, that means the patient doesn't have an infection, you're trying to prevent one, right? So you want prophylaxis to be narrowly directed towards the bugs that's present, right? So when you're talking about something like appendicitis, you want to give something that treats gram negatives and anaerobes because those are the bacteria that you'll find. But you don't want to use really broad spectrum antibiotics for prophylaxis because if the patient happens to get an infection, you don't want them to have developed resistance to the infection that you're going to be treating later, right? So you want it to be a little bit more narrow. So, for example, I would say a second or third generation cephalosporin, something like cefoxidin or cefopitan for like a standard appendectomy. Now, when you're looking at a patient and they look like they have sepsis and you want to treat them because you think that they're infected and you want to try and decrease their mortality, right? This is the situation we're talking about here. Then you're moving into the empiric antibiotic phase. Empiric antibiotics should be broad. So different than how you think about prophylaxis. So broad antibiotics, you know, we used a lot of vancozosin, right? Piptazo was everybody's favorite antibiotic. We're moving towards, in our institution, vanc and cefepime because of the renal issue. But any broad antibiotic choice that covers a lot of things would be good. So other options potentially are like imipenem or meropenem. That's like a good broad choice. You can also use for patients who have unknown penicillin allergies. You know, I would still probably be willing to give them cephalosporins. But if there's really a concern about anaphylaxis or something, then you can use something like levofloxacin, you know, as your gram-negative choice. So, 
you always want a second choice for, you know, your gram positives too. So if vancomycin isn't possible, then you would think about something like linazolid. And so that way you have sort of a bunch of different choices that you can think about, you know. But I think it's always good to have your preferred regimen, especially for your local antibiogram sort of in your back pocket. So you're not thinking about it on the fly. You have 60 minutes to get this antibiotic into this person. Now, like our knee-jerk reaction is bank and cefepine here. And then there's therapeutic, right? Once you know someone has an infection, you've gotten a culture, you know where it is, you know what the bug is, target to the bug and take out any of the extra coverage that you have. That's a great point, especially when it comes to antibiotic stewardship and then the prevention of MDROs by overstretching or overusing these really broad antibiotics. Matt, do you have something to add? Yeah, let me ask Dr. Ho. You know, we hear a lot about double coverage. You need to double cover. Are you routinely doing that when you have a patient with sepsis? And by that, they mean double cover for gram negatives. Or is there a patient population who you do double cover, but you you don't routinely? We don't routinely double cover. I think in our patient population, the pseudomonas that we tend to see starts out pretty susceptible, actually. We don't have a ton of MDROs in our organization, so we don't have to start with double covering. Pseudomonas is one of those bugs that can change its resistance pattern as you treat it. So if you find that you're having treatment failure, like clinical treatment failure with the regimen that you're on, it's reasonable to reculture and try and get new susceptibilities or switch agents as you're waiting for those results to come back. But we don't routinely double cover. Now, some things that we do, you know, with necrotizing soft tissue infection, we'll often do, for example, like we'll do vancomycin and cefepime and we'll add Clinda because there's some evidence of synergy for necrotizing soft tissue infections, but we don't routinely cover for gram-negative tests. We don't either. I like the approach that you guys are talking about. I think we definitely need to be broad. Usually once we've gotten through our history and physical, we at least have some sense as to what organ system might be involved, hopefully. And then again, based on your local antibiogram, you're going to target based on that. And if you're really in the dark, just go broad or go home. I think whenever I talk with my learners, I always talk about the seed in the soil. And again, the soil being the host and the seeds being the potential pathogens. And so when it comes to like host considerations, outside of thinking about, you know, what organ system might be involved, I always want to know about allergies and then renal and liver function. And then when it comes to the seed, I kind of always want to ask myself, just as you guys have, have mentioned, you know, do they need CNS coverage? Because that's going to be a different sort of antibiotic regimen than someone who we're not concerned about meningoencephalitis. And as surgeons, we very rarely see that patient population. But do they need anaerobic coverage in addition to the gram positive or gram negative? Could they be at risk for C. diff? Do they need pseudomonal coverage or fungal coverage? So, so much of that has to do with, you know, like what sort of host we have. In terms of fluids and resuscitation, in the past and still ongoing is the debate between crystalloids, colloids, and then balanced salt solutions. So are you guys really picky when it comes to the type of fluids that we're going to administer to our patients in that first hour, Dr. Ho? So I think in the first hour, I would start with a balanced salt solution crystalloid 
that's what's recommended. That's what's in these early bundles. At that point, you're not really that worried about fluid overload. I think once you have a patient who's gotten 15, 20, 30 liters positive, then you start thinking, well, we maybe need to stop doing so much crystalline. But I think initially when you're just trying to sort of prime the pump and fill the tank, then I think crystalline is a reasonable place to start. Matt, any considerations when it comes to the type of fluid? No. And I would say I would divide it into early in the resuscitation and then later. And I think early it's crystalloid, saline or LR. There's little evidence of difference. I have no problem, though, switching to albumin later for a patient who's gotten a large amount of crystalloid, for a patient who's hyperchloremic. And then, you know, there's some subgroups like a serotic. You know, if, if there's been shown to be any patient that might benefit from switching to albumin, a patient with pre-existing cirrhosis or hypoalbuminemic would probably be one of the only ones. That being said, I don't think it hurts to add some colloid. It's more expensive, but you know, if you have those concerns, I think it's fine to add in some colloid. And we'll generally start with a 15 to 20 cc per kilogram fluid administration and see how they're responding. And if it's a patient who, you know, I'm as concerned about volume overloading, we may not necessarily go to the full 30 cc's per kilogram, but that becomes a problem with the bundles we just talked about because, you know, if you haven't given 30 cc's per kilogram, you know, if you gave 29, you have not met the bundle. And that's one of the critiques of it is if you have a CHF patient who normalizes their pressure after, you know, 10 cc's per kilogram, you get dinged for not following through and giving them the 30 cc's per kilogram target. And that's the problem, I think, when we take a concept and try and turn it into a hard metric is people kind of game around it uh, versus just doing what they know is good bedside care. Yeah. And then we have the later bundle where you've got a document in the chart per CMS that you've done some sort of reassessment of the patient's volume status, whether that's physical exam or some dynamic measurement of fluid responsiveness. So there certainly are a lot of things that go along with some of these CMS requirements. And like you said, even if you're off by just a a CC per kg, you get dinged. So moving on from the early sepsis bundle, obviously, we've already mentioned the importance of source control. As surgeons, it's kind of straightforward for us if patients have a surgical disease process like a perforated appendicitis or hinge grade four diverticulitis, they're going to go to the OR for source control. What are some other considerations? I mean, not all patients are going to need surgery. And so in terms of other therapies that our colleagues can be using or thinking about early in the process, in addition to operative intervention, what are some of the common adjuncts that are being used, Vanessa? So I think the Stop It trial, which is sort of one of the landmark recent trials in surgical sepsis recently, the Stop It trial looked at intra-abdominal infections and the duration of antibiotics. But one thing that they did make clear in their patient population was they looked at duration of the antibiotic use after source control. And they defined source control as surgical intervention or interventional radiology drainage, you know, any kind of percutaneous drainage of an abscess would also be considered source control. And for me, that was sort of paradigm shifting, that just an IR drain would be considered as adequate as a surgical washout and drainage 
for intra-abdominal infection really sort of changed my mind about how aggressive you have to be in these circumstances where you have complicated intra-abdominal sepsis. So I think that, you know, that is definitely an option for source control. I think you always have these patients who source control is actually impossible. You know, you have a patient who's two weeks, three weeks post-op from an operation, and you know that they're going to have a lot of adhesions and surgery would be too dangerous, but they've got interloop abscesses that you can't reach with percutaneous strains. And I think that's really one of the future research questions that we have to look into is, you know, what's the duration of antibiotics for people who you can't get source control, people with uncontrolled fistulas? I think that's where some of this art comes into practicing um, with these guidelines. Let me ask you this, and I see this a lot. Patient comes in, they're hypotensive, CT scan, they've got a big intra-abdominal fluid collection and abscess. And what I hear often is, they need surgery, we're going to take them to the ICU to resuscitate them so they can tolerate surgery. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, this whole idea of source control versus, oh, they're they're too unstable and they need a period of resuscitation and waterboarding before we actually take them to the OR. And I think there's no safer or better place to be if you're sick than the operating room where you've got multiple teams, you got the anesthesia team, the folks above the blood-brain barrier who can actually stick down a TEE, get a sense as to what the pump function is like, as well as the volume status, and be really aggressive about getting the fluids into them. And then when they're non-responsive, to start those vasopressors to help these patients who are oftentimes so vasodilated with no SVR and hyperdynamic, they need more vascular tone while you're getting source control and then kind of continuing that in a damage control fashion in the ICU. I think about this often. I've had two patients go from talking to dead from necrotizing soft tissue infections before my eyes, where I was trying to wheel them to the operating room and just couldn't get them there in time, despite all best efforts. I couldn't agree with you more that the best place to resuscitate the patient is in the operating room. You do worry about vasodilation on induction. And so these are the types of patients who get their A-line and their central line in before induction. They get their resuscitation on the OR table, and you prep and drape them as they're being induced. Because when it's bad, it gets really bad. So I think that waiting doesn't help fix the problem at all. If this patient is actively trying to die from sepsis, you get dysregulation, right? Like the whole definition of sepsis is dysregulation of physiology. So waiting doesn't make that dysregulation any better. It just makes it worse. So you have to do all these things and you have to do them quickly. And the OR is the best place. Yeah, Dr. Martin, your thoughts or philosophy on that approach? That's why I brought it up is I, I've seen that many times, exactly that. And, and somebody dies in the ICU or codes in the ICU and they were brought there because they're too unstable for surgery. So I think you need to have it in your mind. Is this patient unstable because of an uncontrolled source? Or, you know, does this patient have an infection, but they're unstable, you know, for issues that maybe aren't necessarily directly related to an uncontrolled source. And the first group, they should be going to the OR 
And like you mentioned, that's a great place to resuscitate. If you can't resuscitate in your OR, just like can in the ICU, you probably shouldn't be taking care of these patients. But Vanessa brings up the other great point of, you know, they're already hypotensive and then you're going to induce them or RSI them. And yeah, you will see those patients arrest. And I think that gets to another bias that probably most of us were taught, which is pressors are the tool of the devil. (laughs) And you never give pressors until you've given 700 cc's per kilogram fluid. And then it's as a last ditch. And that's the other concept I think we need to get over. And that patient that you're talking about is hypotensive going to the R about to get RSI. Start them on pressors along with your fluid resuscitation. Start them on pressors. Earlier pressors, I think, have been clearly shown to be not only safe, but beneficial in, in many situations. And we need to get out of that old mindset that we would apply mostly to trauma patients who are bleeding to death of you can never use pressors until you know you're fully resuscitated. Yeah, pressors and tourniquets, the tools of the devil. <laughs> I completely agree. I mean, I don't think you need to wait for that whole 30 cc kg bolus to go in. I think from a conceptual standpoint, it's nice to fill the tank before you press the pipes and squeeze the pump. But patients need flow. I mean, they need flow and oxygen delivery to their end organs. And if they're completely, you know, their SVR is completely down, they're not going to get it. They, in addition to their distributive shock, everything else that's going on with their myocardial suppression and pump function, these are all working against them. So I agree. I think early pressors, early pressors that are given through a peripheral line even, are all shown to be safe. And so we definitely need to get out of that mindset. The other thing that I've seen, and Vanessa, you mentioned this, is patients code on induction. And one of the things maybe for our junior learners to remember is that there's a reason why a PaCO2 less than 32 or tachypnea is part of the SERS criteria. These patients are hypoperfused, they're acidotic, and the way to compensate for that is to increase their minute ventilation. And so a lot of these patients are kind of chugging They've still got a low pH, and now you make them apneic. If our friends above the uh, blood-brain barrier aren't super aggressive about bagging, that patient will just tank with a pH of 6.8, and they die in front of you. So we got to have those pressors on board, maintain perfusion, and then be aggressive about hyperventilation. Yeah, and, and actually, let me add, I said, you know, that's our trauma paradigm of never use pressors, even in trauma. Now, you know, there was a great study that came out, the AVERT trial, Carrie Sims and the group did out of Penn that showed early vasopressin in, you know, bleeding trauma patients. Not only was it safe, you know, and had no difference in outcomes in terms of mortality, it markedly decreased the number of blood products the patients needed. So even in bleeding trauma patients, I think the pendulum is swinging a bit and early balance resuscitation should include a presser agent if the patient is persistently hypotensive and it's not going to hurt the patient and it may help you get hemorrhage control or in the sepsis patient definitely will help you get them through, you know, induction and an operation. And and I think the other good reason to do it to start a presser is because you now start your presser of choice because I can tell you what's going to happen if you don't start a presser. Anesthesia is going to be pushing Neo <laughs> to get you through that case. And you're going to come out and the patient's going to gotten a whole lot of Neo and, and nothing else. So at least if you've started it, you've started whatever your presser of choice is. That's a great point. So, you know, obviously the surviving sepsis guidelines have been pushing norepinephrine as the first line agent, which again, it's primarily an alpha one adrenergic agonist. 
kind of like phenylephrine. And when I trained in Canada in fellowship, uh, a lot of our ICUs had anesthesia ICU folks. And so our first line agent was always phenylephrine. And it was nice because it's a push dose vasopressor. It's easy to mix and you can just give little 100 mic boluses. Do you guys think there really is much of a difference between like phenylephrine and norepinephrine? And what's your first line agent? I, I imagine it's lipofed. Yeah, I feel like norepinephrine is my first line. If you look at the data that generated the surviving sepsis guidelines, I think that's really the only presser that has any evidence of having an improvement in outcomes from sepsis. And I think clinically too, if you start some norepinephrine and you start some phenylephrine, the phenylephrine is like a drop in the bucket. If you're already on norepinephrine, the phenylephrine just doesn't really do much. <laughs> so I think if you're going to add a presser to norepinephrine, for me, it's going to be epi usually because at some point you need a little extra cardiac push. Yeah, and, and same here. Norepi is the first choice presser. It does increase cardiac output though. So I would not think of Levafed like I think of Neo. It will increase cardiac output. You know, it doesn't do it as much as Epi, but you get less tachycardia right. than Epi. But it's it's interesting. You said your second presser would be epinephrine. So you wouldn't do vasopressin as your second presser for somebody who's still hypotensive on Levafed. No, I think vasopressin has a role. Vasopressin to me is something that either goes on and off, right? So vaso usually goes on at 0.03 and it's on. And there's some data that shows too that you'd rather add vasopressin early rather than titrate up and up and up on your levofed. And so there's some evidence that you, you're titrating up on your first suppressor. There's maybe a benefit of adding, adding vasopressin early. But once that's on, if your pressure is still dropping, I feel like it's, it's not the kind of thing that you can titrate. So it's, once it's on, it's on offer. You know, I just don't feel like it's the kind of thing that, that will save you in a situation where you feel like someone's dying and then you're watching their maps just drop. And so at that point, usually I'm, I'm like, Epi, please save me. <laughs> well, so that's interesting. And I think it's also important to realize that Levafed became the presser of choice, not only for its positive effects, but for kind of all the bad effects of dopamine, which it was always exactly. leave a better dopamine were your two choices. And I think we've pretty much settled on the data being that dopamine is a less effective presser. You get too many unpredictable dosage-based effects. And that's one reason Levofed became a choice is because it, it's clearly superior to all the bad effects you get with dopamine. And it's interesting with the vasopressin question because there have been a couple trials that like uh, the Vanish trial is probably the biggest one that compared them head-to-head -head as the primary presser, vasopressin versus levofed, and showed no difference, which to me was interesting because I would assume that vasopressin would be worse than levofed as the upfront presser of choice. It, one thing, if you look at that trial, the adverse events were higher with vasopressin. They weren't statistically significant, but it, it was relatively small when you looked at those adverse events. But things like digital ischemia were higher with vasopressin. But there is some data saying vasopressin is probably as good or acceptable to leave a fed as a primary presser. I haven't bought into it, <laughs> but it's data that's out there. I still think of like the VAST trial. And for me, vasopressin is sort of vasopressor, sparing vasopressor, if you will. And so I kind of tell the trainees, if you're on double digit nor epi, add the vasopressin. 
And uh, I don't really have a, a good sense as to how we should titrate it off, but it always tends to be, for me at least, the last one to come off. Once the norepi and the epi have come off, vasopressin still kind of just there and then gets shut off. And when patients are on big doses of norepinephrine, and let's say they're also on the vasopressin, again, just to emphasize, there really is no max dose. I think we hear that a lot in the ICU. You know, they're maxed on norepinephrine and they're on like 30 mics per minute. I think it's so important for our learners to realize that patients are going to respond in different ways to different vasopressors. And just because we start with norepi plus or minus vaso, we don't have to max out doses before we start epi, particularly if they have ongoing clinical signs of hypoperfusion. Everyone's physiology is so different. And sometimes what patients really need is that epi to help with the myocardial contractility and flow. Before you've gotten to that point, and like the guidelines mentioned, even just with using volume resuscitation, is you should be doing some kind of dynamic assessment of is the patient volume responsive or what the primary problem is so you can target your fluids or pressors. And I'd be interested to hear what you all are using because this is different everywhere. We've gone to using the um, Vigileo, you know, if the patient, they obviously all have an A-line and as long as they're not in rapid AFib, we've gone to using the Vigileo, which will give you, you know, a cardiac output, but then it'll also give you an SVV basically respiratory variations that'll give you a measure of their volume status. And so we'll use that to decide, you know, if their SVV is high, we'll give more fluid. If their SVV is low and they're hypotensive, you know, we might add a presser. If their cardiac output is low, then we'll add an inotrope like either epi or dobutamine. And that's been our approach. I'm just curious what you both are using. I think this is one of the biggest questions in the ICU and it's you know, when we have especially medical students who rotate through the ICU, I always tell them, you know, the biggest question we have in these patients is usually like, does the patient need more fluid or does the patient need less fluid? And it's really hard to tell. And sometimes, you know, the old way was just like you bolus them until they were really puffy and then you diurese them like crazy until their electrolytes were all out of whack. And I do think it's really important to have an assessment of their cardiac output status so that you don't go off the cliff of the Starling curve. Um, what we're doing at Metro is generally, we're actually using the Cheetah device, which is like a bioimpedance monitor, and you put four stickers on the patient's torso, and usually that it measures cardiac output non-invasively, and you can do it with a straight leg raise or with a small fluid bolus. And what the straight leg raise does is it simulates about a 300 cc bolus by returning the blood from the veins of the legs. So you put the legs up and it simulates this bolus and you can see if there's, if the patient is still fluid responsive. So we're actually using that more and more to try to figure out whether we should still be giving patients fluids. And if we don't, then we would probably use that number to decide um, to increase pressors instead. I usually start steroids when you're adding the second pressor. At least we start to talk about it. What are the risks and benefits of adding steroids in this patient? And then we're really talking about it if we haven't added them yet when we add a third presser. Oh, one more thing that I think that, you know, neither of us mentioned yet, but I think that we should be doing more and more is using ultrasound. And I think that that's a limitation of 
some of the past training, I think that there's a lot of variation in expertise in using the ultrasound, but we've got sort of an educational protocol here at Metro to get all of the attendings up to date, myself included, at being able to use and interpret cardiac ultrasound. Um, and I think that's something that we should be doing more and more because it's available immediately at the bedside and it's really no cost to patients and it's non-invasive. And if you can interpret it, it's a fantastic tool. But what ultrasound parameter are you using? I mean, because there's, you know, vena cava, distension and collapsibility, which is I think is easy. And then it gets up to, you know, you're trying to look at the stroke volume and cardiac output where, you know, you've got to be pretty good at ultrasound to get that. Just curious, what are you doing? And if anything, we'll look at vena cava collapsibility and we'll get a formal echo usually on these patients. But we we have not gone to the and just because most of us don't have the skill set, you know, to reliably look at the heart and say, here's the stroke volume or here's the exact cardiac output. So we're actually doing a study on some of my partners. Karen Alada and Laura Brown are doing an educational initiative and a study to look at, you know, what can we reliably measure in these patients who are hypotensive. And right now we are mostly looking at vena cava collapsibility. There's also some data that when you look at the heart contractility and ultrasound, just the observer sense of is this hyperdynamic or you know, is it good or bad, essentially? Like a very gross perception of is the contractility reasonable or does it look diminished is actually a pretty good measure of the patient's cardiac status at that point. So we're actually doing sort of a qualitative measure there. And then we're also looking at carotid measurements. And this is not my area of expertise. I don't remember exactly what we're looking at there. But we're doing a couple of different things to see what will be most useful to us And if we can figure that out, then I think that's something that should be the future. Yeah, we have a very similar approach. I think uh, we make very liberal use of Vigileo and FlowTrack. So provided that patients are mechanically ventilated, at least eight cc's per kg, no arrhythmias, these are patients who we will use that to determine fluid responsiveness. Again, that doesn't mean they need fluid. But if I give an aqualot or do a passive leg raise, will they respond? I still like some of the old school stuff. You know, I know there's tons of trials out there showing that early goal directed therapy and CVP and central lines aren't helpful or at least, you know, no more beneficial than just standard of care. But I still like my SVO2 especially in patients with septic shock. I always ask for an SVO2. And when it's low, it makes me kind of think like, what do I need to augment their oxygen delivery? Again, I'm not going to transfuse them. I'm not going to do any of the things that they did back in circa 2000, but maybe they will respond to some more volume. Maybe they need an inotrope. And then what's kind of happening when it comes to both oxygen delivery and extraction? I make very liberal use of ultrasound. I started off the same way, just kind of qualitatively, what does the LV look like? It looks great, hyperdynamic, or it kind of looks crappy. But since then, I've really moved on to being a little bit more quantitative. I find the IVC distensibility uh, when patients are ventilated isn't that helpful. And we have so many limitations because patients have abdominal aptheras and chest tubes and all kinds of things that might limit the views. So I've moved more towards quantitative assessment, uh, simply getting a parasternal long axis view. You can freeze 
in diastole and systole, measure the LV diameter, and that gives you your EF. So even before you get that formal TTE from cardiology, and you're not going to get that at two in the morning, I do EF assessments. And then the sauna sites and the new ultrasound machines, they've got all the software in there. So you can very easily calculate a cardiac output simply by measuring the LVOT and then calculating. And again, the machine does it for you. You get a a nice five-chamber view. You stick the gate on the aortic valve and it gives you a VTI. And with those two measurements, you've got a cardiac output. Then there's the more complicated Simpsons method. So I absolutely agree. I think we as surgeons need to get more facile using ultrasound. Um, We talk about it a lot and using it, but the fact is it's been very slow to roll out. And at AAST just this year, they showed that by using this in the same method that Dr. Ho mentioned, just qualitatively attendings looking at it can decrease the amount of fluids that uh, geriatric patients are getting in the ICU over the first couple of days, less time on the ventilator, less time in the ICU, all good outcomes. And then again, I still like Swangan's catheters particularly in patients with multiple comorbidities and underlying cardiac disease. If a patient has evidence of depressed cardiac function, I know they're laughing at me. You can't see this, but they're laughing, laughing hard. I will not hesitate to flow in a pack, a pulmonary artery catheter, and then I'll spend the next two days talking about cardiovascular physiology and waveforms And I think it's great for the fellows to learn how to interpret these things and place them safely. It's great in terms of teaching for physiology. And I do think that uh, both with the direct and indirect measurements you get from a pack, you can make some fine-tuned changes in terms of the patient's physiology. And just as a correction, we weren't laughing. We were more scoffing. (laughs) So getting back to the steroids then, I guess we seem to have some sort of consensus in terms of the use of non-invasive dynamic measurements for fluid responsiveness. Uh, Matt, when are you starting the steroids? I agree with what Vanessa said because we talked about, well, you know, you're on levofed, you're adding vasopressin, now you're adding epi. Yeah. So I, I would start the steroids before that. And I think exactly like she said is, you know, when I'm starting a second presser, or I'm really dialing up on the levofed and they're not responding appropriately to that in volume. <laughs> or what, sorry, Where sorry I just put up a sign that said the 2000s wants its critical care back. <laughs> so I haven't yeah, used I, a PA catheter in a very long time. And the last time I suggested one, people looked at me like, I don't even know where to get one. So yeah, Dennis, you're way too young to be arguing wands. Uh, <laughs> in select patients, in select patients. I think if you do use a swan, the only meaningful number I would use would be the uh, mixed venous O2, which you know you can get from a swan, but really can't get it. But anyway, but so steroids, uh, like I said, anybody who's in septic shock and not responding, you're adding a second presser. I start steroids. The problem is the literature is all over the map. I mean, it's literally like every year a study showing no benefit comes out, followed by a study showing some benefit. I do think it's nice now because probably you, like uh, a lot of us, were doing the, oh, we now have to do a stim test and you know measure the cortisol and give them a stim and then test it again and, and find the delta. And I think the guidelines now are just very nice of start the steroids, see if they respond clinically. If they do, continue them. If they don't, stop them. 
if you want to check some kind of level, I'll send a random cortisol a lot of times more for academics and talking to the residents about it. Uh, and that I think helps confirm if you have, you know, a low random cortisol of less than 10, then generally that supports that they'll probably benefit from the steroids. I think probably the open question is, is what you start and, and how long. And I think the big debate is, you know, that there, there are studies with hydrocortisone alone and then hydrocortisone plus a mineral corticoid and whether using them both together is the one that actually has the benefit. We've generally just used hydrocortisone alone, but I certainly think it's reasonable based on a couple of the studies to add the flucocortisone. We usually are just using hydrocortisone and we use the doses that are in the surviving sepsis guidelines. So those changed a while ago. It used to be 300 milligrams a day and divided doses. And now it's 200 milligrams a day and divided doses. So we just, we do that. Are you checking cortisol or you're not doing a stim test, right? No, no stim test. Sometimes a random cortisol, but oftentimes it's just start it and stop it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's any role. I think everyone talks about corticus, which in my humble opinion was a, a crap trial. But I think one of the things that did come out of it, other than stopping early for failure to accrue and running out of funds, is you really don't need that cortisol stim test. If you think patients are in septic shock, start it early, particularly in patients who are really sick. I think that's what the original Anon French trial showed. And uh, we're not using mineralocorticoids. We're doing 50Q6 of hydrocortisone. And uh, typically until the pressors are kind of coming down, no more than five to seven days with no tapering. Yeah, and I think the, the other thing that is nice about the steroid literature, you know, and you mentioned corticus, and then there's been the adrenal trial and the approach SS trial. The one thing that's nice is they've shown some patients might benefit, there might be no benefit, but there's probably no harm. You know, none of those trials have shown worse outcomes in the steroid group. And again, as surgeons, I was taught, you know, steroids are another tool of the devil. And if you do an anaphthomosis, it's going to fall apart and this patient won't be able to fight an infection. But I think the data is pretty clear. There's no harm. And actually, most of the trials are pretty consistent that there may not be a mortality benefit, but they're off pressors faster. And, and there's a couple that show their, you know, organ failure scores are better. So I think the data falls solidly on the line of may help, definitely won't hurt. Agreed. Now, we did talk about the endpoints of resuscitation or assessing at least the dynamic measures of fluid responsiveness. One thing we haven't talked about that does come up in the early sepsis bundle and that drives me absolutely crazy is trending of lactates. And I know, Matt, we've kind of talked about this previously when we went over endpoints of resuscitation. And one of the big take-homes for me when we talked was you know, endpoints are going to vary depending on the clinical scenario, TBI versus hemorrhagic shock, and in this case, sepsis and septic shock. So patient comes in, they're diagnosed with sepsis, their lactate is three on admission. What do we do with that? You know, sepsis three really emphasized the use of lactate. And up till I saw that, I hadn't really been using it much. I did work somewhere where we got a lactate immediately with admission labs for every trauma, just as part of the trauma admission lab order set, which I had never done before. And just seeing lactates on all trauma patients made me realize that a lot of these patients had a lactate of 11 from like alcohol and dehydration. And it made me really worry about the use of lactate in other clinical situations. 
situations. But because sepsis 3 had such an emphasis on using lactate and trending it, I will send it on a patient who I think may have early sepsis, septic shock, and then I just use it as one of the things that we follow, so not the thing. Yeah, Matt, how about you? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think it's reasonable to follow trends. And well, definitely what's very clear, lactate improving is a great positive prognosticator. Lactate worsening is a very strong negative prognosticator with the exception that you really, you have to throw out if your patient has cirrhosis or shock liver, because if they do, their lactate is going to be high regardless. I find how the lactate more often helps me is it helps me and the trainees feel comfortable not giving more fluids. Because I, I see this a lot of, oh, you know, systolic's 90, but they're viewing creatinine's normal. They're making urine, they're la- and then we'll get a lactate, and lactate's normal. And that helps us say, okay, you know, we don't need to drive some, you know, arbitrary number here. And I also, the only other thing about, I don't get crazy about lactates in the two to four range. It's really when it's higher than four that I start to get concerned. You know, so the lactate of three, if they're otherwise doing well, I wouldn't go crazy about trying to drive that down to two. So I think it gives you some decent prognostic information. I also think it helps. And I think the studies have borne that out, you know, using that helps you reduce the fluid you would otherwise just give empirically. Yeah, I just see this tendency to kind of just hammer folks with uh, crystalloids and volume, essentially dilute the lactate out until it's normal. And I think, like you said, if it's going in the right direction, it's not something that we need to be repeating every four to six hours until it's completely rock solid normal or less than four. Take a look at your patient, examine them. What are all the other end organs doing? Are they making urine? You know, are they warm and well perfused? Uh, you know, there was the uh, Andromeda shock trial that kind of looked at lactate trending versus serial clinical exams with cap refill and found that just doing that was non inferior to lactates. And, and I like the fact that it brings our attention back to the bedside, examining our patients. And uh, so I'm a big fan of the, the physical exam in that regard, at least. Oh, one more thing just really quickly about lactate is that lactate is cleared by the kidney. So a lot of our patients, you may expect to see that their lactate is going to go down, but they have some acute kidney injury from their sepsis. And it might make you feel worse about a situation than it actually is because their lactate isn't clearing or anything like that. So you have to just take into account the entire patient's picture as we've sort of all been saying. Yeah. And as we talk about lactate, I always think of ischemic gut, although whether your lactate's normal, you can have dead gut. If it's high, it can be completely fine. But on the topic of the gut and nutrition, Dr. Martin, what's your approach in terms of the timing of initiation of enteral tube feeds in a patient who's on multivasopressor therapy and in the throes of septic shock day one following admission to the ICU. Yeah, I don't get crazy about feeding them early, especially in that initial 24 hours of resuscitation, if they're unstable, if they're on pressors. Once we have them, quote unquote, stabilized, they're improving, they're on low dose of presser, we'll try to start enteral tube feeds as early as we can. I think you got to think about it as, you know, they're an engine and your engine normally processes nutrients like it should but a septic patient, their engine is not working. So you're more likely to just get the negative byproducts 
of however they're going to process those nutritional substrates you give them and get no benefit. And I think all the studies, the nice thing about the literature too, is there have been a lot of studies that have looked at full caloric versus hypocaloric, that have looked at full feeding versus just trophic. And in general, they've shown the same outcomes. There's no benefit early on of ramping these patients up to 30 kcals per kg per day. Uh, you know, even trophic feeds was equivalent to full feeds, you know, for the first week. So that's the other nice thing is I don't get crazy if we start tube feeds and they're running at 20 an hour and we, we haven't advanced them up to 80, you know, in the first day. I think you get the majority of the benefit from nutrition with just initiating it, you know, at a low rate, not with driving them up to some arbitrary and high caloric goal. And if you look at the meta-analyses of the data, the group that always falls out as having possible worse outcomes with higher caloric loads are the septic patients. Yeah. Dr. Ho, any thoughts on early enteral nutrition in patients with sepsis or septic shock? I mean, I think this is a pendulum swing, right? Like everything in critical care swings this way and that way. And, you know, speaking of things that are agents of the devil, TPN is evil. You know, we always learned that TPN was evil. So you wanted to start these enterally early as soon as you could. And I think that there's really good data for that in patients who aren't septic, right? Like patients who are, are patients who have traumatic brain injuries and have nothing wrong with their gut. We should start them early. We should try and get them up to goal rates so that they can continue with their caloric needs. I think septic patients are different. And the reason they're different, you know, I think is I sort of tell my trainees that patients' bodies are going to be in a catabolic state or an anabolic state. And patients who are septic are not going to be able to process calories to make new muscle. Patients who are septic are going to be in a catabolic state, and they're going to tend to use their own muscle to make energy, right? They're going to be using their body's stores, and they're not going to be able to take the nutrition that you give them and actually use it. And you can look at it, you know, when you look at a patient who has sepsis and you look at their wounds and they're all fibrinous and gross and there's no granulation tissue, you can use that as a sign of when patients turn from anabolic to catabolic because when they start putting in granulation tissue and they start being able to use the nutrition to build new tissues, like that to me is a huge turning point that shows that the patient is getting better, right? So I think that's sort of some of the philosophy behind why feeding a septic patient probably isn't as effective as we would want it to be and why it's probably safe to do these lower level trophic feeds in these patients. Their bodies are just spending so much energy fighting sepsis that it's not going to use their energy to sort of take in nutrition and convert it to useful energy. Yeah. And I also think it's important that, and this should be where the nutrition question starts, is the first step is a nutritional evaluation with some kind of standardized metric. And now probably the two best are the Nutrix score or the NRS nutrition risk score. And that's the current SCCM and Aspen guidelines is you start with that and then you can divide your patient into low, moderate, or high nutrition risk. And that drives also, you know, if they're high risk already, that's a person you should be starting on nutrition as early as you can. And even if they can't tolerate enteral, starting them on TPN. And, and we used to be told no TPN ever within the first seven to 10 days. The data now on TPN versus enteral is very good for TPN. So if they're high risk, you should be starting them on either or. 
And then if they're in the low or moderate risk is where, again, you know, you, you don't have to be going that crazy, just getting them some level of nutritional support. And then the other thing is frequent reassessments and adjusting it because the patient is dynamic, right? And we tend to treat them as if they're static of here's their goal, 30 kcals per kg per day from day one. And it doesn't change day two. It doesn't change day 10. Yeah, I think those are all really great points, especially the early nutritional assessment. And in our ICU, we're very blessed to have really enthusiastic uh, dietitians that come in and assess our patients very frequently and really play a large and pivotal role in terms of uh, nutritional delivery. And I agree, I think, especially in patients who are considered low risk, especially these young patients coming into the ICU, it's kind of like pancreatitis. You know, we were always so fixated on getting in early nasogenal feeds, but if they're low risk, you can wait five, seven days and not be too far behind. And with regards to the comments about TPN, if you've got an elderly patient who's cachexic, you know, has a perforated intra-abdominal malignancy, and they're already coming in at very high risk, definitely don't hesitate to start TPN early and upfront. And talk about goals of care for that particular patient. And talk about goals of care. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you like us to do for your mother? Do you want CPR or just intubations? Okay, you let us know. So I'll ask the loaded question that we didn't cover. Awesome. Vitamin C, are you giving it? Are you not giving it? If you're giving it, who are you giving it to? I think a great question. Uh, You know, I never bought into Dr. Merrick's uh, metabolic resuscitation paradigm. I think conceptually and theoretically, it makes sense. I think when we all started doing it, based on the initial results that he had put out. It's like so many things we do in critical care and even trauma. We have something that from a hypothetical standpoint makes sense and fits with the physiology. But in the end, I think uh, based on the numerous trials that have come out since then, it's really demonstrated that there's really no benefit to metabolic therapies. And interestingly, amongst my group of eight here, None of us ever really did the metabolic resuscitation. Dr. Ho, how about you? I mean, I think it falls along the lines of treatments that maybe don't do anything good, but also maybe don't do anything bad. So we always talk about it when we're starting steroids. So as we have the conversation of like, this is a patient who's septic, there are one or two pressers and we're not making a lot of headway and we're going up, we're thinking about starting a steroid. Should we start vitamin C and thiamine along with it? It's cheap and it's low risk. There aren't really a lot of bad side effects. So I've done it a couple of times and I don't have a lot of personal data about it, but it doesn't seem to make a big difference in the patients I've used it in. But at least I feel like I haven't done them any harm. So you're using it? I've used it a few times in select patients who I feel like I don't have a lot of other tools at my disposal. And those patients were probably not going to do well anyway. But, you know, it at least gave us something to try and it wasn't hurtful. But I do think that there's more and more data coming out that it probably is not effective. So we don't use it routinely in our institution. Yeah, we generally, we don't use it routinely. We'll use it in select patients. There has been a lot of interest in using it in COVID patients, which is a whole separate discussion, COVID sepsis patients. And that is part of the the Merrick protocol for them. I think, if anything, the patient with ARDS or a primary pulmonary issue, 
you know, that probably the strongest data for it was from the, the Citrus ALI trial, which was in septic lung injury patients. And that's the one that showed a mortality benefit. The other problem is now it's wrapped up in there's all these HAT, HATS therapy trials of hydrocortisone, vitamin C, and thiamine. And then you're left trying to figure out, well, if there was a benefit, which of those is it from? But I think the AXE randomized trial just came out recently. I think it was in JAMA or JAMA Medicine for HAT therapy and showed no difference in outcomes. So, you know, if anything, maybe the lung injury patient. But actually, I agree with Vanessa. It's, it falls into these probably won't help most people, may help some people. I think pretty clearly it doesn't hurt. I agree. I don't think it's going to have major harms, but uh, it is interesting. You know, I think in the world of resuscitation and sepsis care, if there's something that's safe and cheap, why not try it out? As uh, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you spent time in New York taking care of COVID patients. What was your experience there like and what were some of the key take-homes or lessons learned regarding management of patients with COVID? Yeah, and, and that's obviously a great question and a hot topic. And way beyond, you know, that would be another two hours of discussion. I, I would guess the high points that I took away. And in addition to New York, we've had a pretty steady stream of COVID here uh, in San Diego. One is that these patients are usually septic. Uh, and I think people often think of it's just COVID and, you know, it's some kind of viral lung issue and that's it. They're usually septic, meeting all the criteria for sepsis. They definitely have multi-organ failure. They have a much higher rate of renal failure than most other septic populations. So I do think it's important to remember that we should be treating them like a septic patient in addition to COVID. It's been another great learning experience in how there's data coming out every other day of varying qualities, and we're trying to treat based on incomplete information and what works. And so I would just say, you know, as of now, probably, you know, remdesivir, we're, we're giving most of the patients remdesivir. If definitely, if they meet criteria for the ICU, they're getting remdesivir. There's probably a recovery benefit from that. Most of the other things haven't shown a true benefit. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is clearly the strongest benefit has been with steroids. <laughs> and I mean, I think the dexamethasone data is pretty hard to argue against. It's way better than the remdesivir data. And the interesting thing is the dexamethasone data, you know, there's been three or four randomized trials that have come out now showing benefit, while simultaneously hydrocortisone trials have come out showing no benefit, which made me think back to our just general sepsis discussion of almost all our sepsis data is hydrocortisone. And, you know, and I'm wondering if there's something different or special about dexamethasone that we need to be looking at and maybe would results be different. And there's also been one dexamethasone randomized trial in just ARDS patients that showed a benefit. So, so I don't know what you guys think about that, but I'd be interested to see, you know, a good big randomized trial of dexamethasone as the steroid of choice for sepsis and wondering if we're going to see a different outcome than what we've seen with hydrocortisone. It is really interesting to see that there isn't this class effect. And when I think about corticosteroids, you know, outside of the differences in dosing and potency, I never really thought that there would be much of a, a difference in terms of effect on mortality in these patients. So it's a very interesting idea. Dr. Ho, know you have to go. And thank you so much for joining us while you're on your service week. Any key take-home points when it comes to the future of sepsis care, either with regards to diagnostics or therapeutics? What do you see as being the next great thing in terms of sepsis management? Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. I think sepsis, we still have a long way to go with sepsis. Sepsis is still a major problem. It's 
often a surgical problem. I think it's something that surgeons need to be aware of and current with literature. I think the next great things that we have to worry about are sort of continuing to refine our diagnoses to make sure that we're capturing the right people. Hopefully we want a tool for sepsis that's sensitive and specific so that we can identify the correct people early on. And also, I think we need to look at more studies on duration of therapy so that people can feel comfortable stopping antibiotics early. You know, there are other diseases other than intra-abdominal infections that we just have no idea how long to treat um, them for. And so patients probably receive broad-spectrum antibiotics for too long, and that's going to hurt us into the future. Dr. Martin, any thoughts in terms of the uh, next great thing in sepsis? Yeah, read Dr. Ho's review paper in Surgical Infections. And infection. join the Surgical Infection Society. <laughs> and pay your dues. <laughs> depending on your level of nerdiness, join the Surgical Infection Society. Absolutely. But no, that's, she wrote a great review paper that sepsis for surgeons. I would recommend reviewing that. It covers a lot of these issues. And I agree, the duration of treatment and antibiotics is a big question. You know, I think procalcitonin helps us tailor or stop antibiotics. It's not a perfect measure. And then I guess in terms of what do I think is the next big thing or where do I think we need more data to sort out? I think the data on hemoperfusion, mostly out of Japan, is really interesting. And basically what that means is you extracorporeally circulate the blood through a filter that filters out endotoxins and cytokines. And there was some initial very promising results out of Japan on that. And there's been a couple randomized trials, the UFIS and the Euphrates. And I think as that product gets better, I get the sense that might be our next big advance in sepsis is filtration, uh, rather more and more resuscitation. Yeah. And as I think about uh, the future of sepsis care and procalcitonin was the other thing that we didn't actually get to. But I would like to see more improved and enhanced diagnostics. I think we're starting to recognize that not all sepsis looks the same. And we're starting to realize that there are different sepsis phenotypes. And I think we've all taken care of patients where they get a wee touch of the pneumonia and they just go into fulminant multiple organ failure despite all of our best efforts. And you have these patients with these rip-roaring NSTIs that chew through their entire body and there's no end organ dysfunction. So I think we're starting to recognize that potentially early on in the case, we might be able to identify these different phenotypes and then tailor our therapies with more targeted, individualized medicine. So I want to thank you so much for joining us, uh, Drs. Ho, Dr. Martin. This was a, a really great conversation. I always learn so much when I talk with you, Matt. And Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us on Rounds. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Dennis. Thank you.